It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see that. Silent Freed people! No, I am the father. What's in the box? You killed You blew it up! Damn you all Hello and welcome to another Slate spoiler special podcast. I am Dana Stevens, movie critic at Slate, and today I am joined by Sam Adams, who's the senior editor of our culture blog, Browbeat, to talk about, and help help me get this right, Sam, Borat's subsequent movie film, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. That's my very mild version of the Borat voice. I believe that's correct. There are actually like, we'll talk about this, there, there are like four different subtitles in this movie. So it's quite a dilemma for people who are sticklers about that. But I think officially that's what it ends up as. I actually have to say I love the title. I think the title is one of the funniest things about the movie and I enjoy saying it. So I was glad to have the chance to. So, of course, Borat's subsequent movie film is the 14 years later sequel to Sasha Baron Cohen's really kind of comedy, comedy industry changing, or at least um, in, in 2006, it seemed that way, uh, first Borat movie. And maybe we should start off, I, I feel like we need to put a little this in a little bit of a frame for those people who might not have been, I don't know, uh, old enough or somehow plugged in enough to have gotten the hype around what the first Borat movie was in 2006. Do you have anything to say about that? I mean, in terms of sort of contrasting what a Borat 1 means to what a Borat 2 means? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, the first Borat was considerably, I much as I hate to use this term, it's inevitably we'll have to, considerably edgier uh, in 2006 than this one is now. I mean, it was a style of mostly kind of British comedy that started to... Um, Come on, I guess sort of in the late '90s, like the the Office, the British Office was part of it. Um, the Day Today and and Chris Morris's stuff, like Brass Eye, kind of uh, is part of its lineage as well. Um, but it's so familiar in the U.S. now in 2020. I mean, one of the plot points they have to deal with in this movie right away is the fact that Sasha Baron Cohen can't go out on the street as Borat anymore because everybody recognizes him because the first movie is so well known. And that's true kind of for the style it represents, too. So they try to push things a little bit farther um, in some respects. It basically, they have to adjust to a world in which the things that not only because it's been 14 years since the first movie came out, but in which the things that kind of were shocking uh, in in 2006 are just not now. Right. I mean, I was looking back at my own review of the 2006 movie, and I feel like I treated it as much as, as a kind of cultural event as I did as a, an aesthetic object. You know, I mean, it really seemed like it was kind of ripping a hole in, you know, comedy that year or in the news as well. And that just points to what a completely different moment we're in now in, in relation to politics, the news, public figures, you know, um, what we expect from public figures in terms of, 
you know, hypocrisy. I mean, as you say in your review of this movie, the new one, this kind of gotcha comedy that he does is just, it's harder to adapt to the world of 2020. And maybe that's why, just to lay my cards on the table up top, I didn't find this movie as funny. I'm glad it's there. And there are there are moments in it that, which we'll talk about that, you know, are revelatory. But I'm glad it's out there. Uh, I'm glad people are laughing at it. We need something to laugh at right now. But I wanted to laugh at this movie so much. I put it on wanting that feeling of kind of explosion and taboo breaking and just I can't believe he did that um, comedy that the 2006 one brought. And instead, and maybe to some degree, this is deliberate and is just a function of where we are right now as a culture. But Ugh, I mean, this left a bad taste in my mouth at many, many moments. And uh, and it was hard to see outside the ugliness of, of what he was showing us to, you know, the sort of hilarity of him being able to show it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he is in a, in a trickier position. Um, you know, in, in the first movie, he has this sort of a common project that runs through a lot of his stuff, but particularly through the Borat movies, they are, they are dedicated towards sort of exposing, you know, prejudice and foibles and stuff like that, but they're really particularly focused on anti-Semitism. Um, and that's something that in 2006, at least with some people, you kind of had to work a little bit to get people to reveal. Um, and now it is, you know, in this movie, literally something that you can just ask somebody to write on, on a cake and they will do it without questioning you. Like it's so out in the open now that the idea that uh, the whole premise of I'm going to trick people into revealing their innermost prejudices is like people are running for office on those prejudices now, like they're not under the surface anymore. So they're kind of in our face every day, all day long. So why, I mean, do we even need a movie funny or not to remind us of that is, is, I mean, that's something that, that the movie I think addresses in some ways, but it certainly like has to, this is part of the dilemma that is comes with making the sequel that comes out now. So maybe it sounds like we're somewhat on the same page there where you weren't rolling in the aisles at this, right? I mean, even if you were impressed by his his daring and his kind of ability to pull these stunts off, would you say that you you laughed really hard? I mean, there's there are definitely moments where I laughed very hard, uh, you know, both times I watched it. And there are moments when I didn't. Um, I think there are moments in this one where it's they're not even going for a laugh um, in some cases. And we sort of maybe talk about those more specifically later on. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's I mean, the novelty of the first movie is not there. Uh, one thing I miss, and this is not really a sort of a hot take or like a conceptual flaw, but watching the first one again last week or so, I was really struck, you know, not just by the kind of obvious things. And I've been worried whether the kind of cringe comedy of it would hold up or it would seem mean. Uh, you know, what I was really struck by watching it is just like what an incredible um, sort of physical performance that Borat in the first movie is. Like just just the way Sacha Baron Cohen like crosses the street as Borat is funny. Um, I'm watching them thinking like this is like one of the, you know, two people alive who could conceivably like play Charlie Chaplin in a movie or something like that. He's just got this incredible um, sort of physical comedy chops that really inform, that really make the character more than just this kind of... Uh, xenophobic caricature. And I, I don't get as much of that in this movie. I think it, this one's much more driven by bits. You know, it it feels less, um, it's weird to say that it's less character driven because I don't think anybody would accuse the first movie of being that, but I just didn't, he uh, was not as, it wasn't as enjoyable like just to watch Sasha Baron Cohen in this movie, just to kind of watch Borat do his thing. And I really, I missed that. Interesting. I mean, that could also be because there's not as much Borat in this movie, because as you said, he's now recognizable to lots of people. And there's a scene of him being chased for autographs when he appears in his classic, you know, ill-fitting gray suit Borat look. 
he turns into all these other characters, right? So we see him as Country Steve, the the character who infiltrates that that rally in Washington State, who's this kind of obese farmer in overalls. Who are some of the other characters he takes on over the course of this? Well, he plays Donald Trump. I mean, he gets into a a pretty convincing um, Donald Trump prosthetic makeup to infiltrate the CPAC. Some of them, I think, are not named. I know there's one character named Cliff Safari at one point. Is that the guy who goes to the debutante ball? No. Uh, well, no, that is that is Professor... Philip Drummond III, I believe is the <laughs> right, Cliff, right. But I think Cliff Safari is the guy who asks the sort of Deb Ball consultant about how he should behave at a debutante ball, if I'm remembering correctly. Right. And of course, this is Sasha Baron Cohen's thing is shape-shifting, taking on different costumes, etc. But I think you're right that there's something about Borat himself, who is somehow lovable in spite of, you know, all his incredible prejudices and, you know, the offensive things that stream nonstop from his mouth. And you sort of miss that there's not as much time spent on screen with him. But to compensate, we have a really likable new character opposite him in the place of Azmat, who was his sidekick in the last movie. He now has a daughter, uh, Tutar, who's played by Maria Bakalova, who is, I mean, I think is really a co-lead in this movie and is quite extraordinary. He apparently did a worldwide search to try to find the right young woman. She's 24, um, playing a 15-year-old, to play Tutar because obviously it has to be someone who um, can can do some of the shape-shifting, physical comedy that he does, but also someone who is utterly shameless and fearless and is able to, you know, just to sort of have a, a, a brass conscience and will when they brave these strange situations that they get into. I prepare my daughter for market and uh, I am looking for um, a suitable cage for her. Okay, a cage. This is pretty nice for you. Oh. 900 bucks. No, no, a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. Uh, I think this one too expensive for She wanted Daughters. Teenagers. You got to make them happy. You have How to... many other girls are going to live in here with me? How many uh, girls you normally put in a cage this size? Uh, one. But I hear uh, McDonald Trump, he... Uh, Cage uh, Mexican children. Well, yes, yeah, high five. <laughs> Part of these movies is, and especially if you watch them more than once, um, or, or even if just sort of paying this sort of attention to them, is um, not just everybody thinks about the kind of gotcha interviews and um, the kind of outlandish comedy bits of them, but they're really so much of them is about um, as comedic performers, and you know, and you could always doubt some bits of it are which are staged and which are sort of purely what they appear to be. And then there are a lot of things that I think are, are somewhat in the middle where uh, the people are that they're kind of interviewing or doing the scene where they're not um, reciting lines, but are also not in the situation that they're being that, that they're being presented in. But you really can watch uh, the performers, Sasha Baron Cohen and Maria Bakalova in this movie, just kind of shaping the scene, like as they go to seizing a moment, uh, turning the in- interaction in a different direction and things like that. And that just takes like an extraordinary amount of um, not just talent, but like kind of presence, a real intelligence about how this is going to play later, which parts can fit together. And Sasha Baron Cohen has been doing this for, you know, 20 odd years or something. It's not surprising that he's really good at it, but the extent to which Maria Bakalova is able to kind of perform in that same way. And if you watch, especially like the her encounter with Rudy Giuliani at the end of the movie, um, some of the other bits, you really just see her kind of thinking on her feet and kind of steering the thing in a certain direction. And that's really kind of extraordinary to watch just as a, as a performance. Yeah, it's, it's, you're right. It's not so much a, an acting 
skill to do that as it is an improv skill and a kind of management skill, right? I mean, it, it really it involves being very um, psychologically attuned to the person that you're talking to and sort of trying to get the performance out of them that you want, even though they're not an actor. That's really key, what you what you just said, I think, about the, the different methodologies employed in this movie, which is the same as in the first Borat movie, but because of the greater likelihood that he'll be recognized is even more complex this time, which is that there's essentially three kinds of scenes. There's scripted scenes where, you know, everybody in it knows they're in a movie. For example, the scenes with just Borat and his daughter, of which there are a lot, and we'll get to that, but that's a that's a significant plot thread about their relationship and its development. Then there's the just the pure pranking kinds, right? Which I guess you could put the, the Giuliani scene into and other scenes with big public figures or when they go into the, you know, infiltrate various gatherings where they're just pretending to be someone else and everybody there is either fooled by that new identity or just um, slowly figures out they're being punked and gets mad about it. And then there's this third kind, which, um, for example, I would say that the the long sequence where Borat hides out or or lives with these uh, these QAnon dudes. Remember when he's he needs a place to hide when the pandemic starts or a place to be safe, and winds up kind of rooming with these two conspiracy theorist roommates. I mean, clearly those guys had to know something was going on, right? Because a cameraman was following them around, presumably for days. There had to be a whole lighting crew there. Obviously, there's some mixture there. I don't think those guys are quite actors, but they had at some point to be told that they were in on something. Right. There have been a bunch of interviews coming out over the last few days with a woman named Janice Jones, um, who's a, I think, 62-year-old uh, black woman from Oklahoma who plays, um, at one point in the movie, Borat uh, leaves Tutar to kind of be babysat by her. Um, and she ends up kind of being like the moral conscience of the movie. She tells him off, like misogyny is a major theme in this. And the fact that, you know, as we know from the first movie, like women in quote unquote Kazakhstan um, are kind of kept in cages. You know, he's horrified at the beginning of the movie to learn that his daughter, who's 15, is unmarried, which makes her the oldest unmarried woman in Kazakhstan. Um, and, and the whole premise is that he's going to kind of go to the U.S., and give her to Mike Pence in order to help Kazakhstan's premier kind of get in the strongman club with Donald Trump. Um, and she's the one, Janice Jones is the one who ends up kind of telling Borat off and saying, like, you can't treat your daughter like this. You can't treat a woman like this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those interactions are apparently kind of more or less legitimate. But she's been interviewed a bunch recently and you find out that they approached her and they said, OK, you know, we're sh we're shooting a documentary about like child care in the U.S. So we're going to take you and put you in this house, which is not yours. And then this guy is going to come and like hand his hand off his daughter and do this and that. Um, so the whole situation is fake. And she knew that she was participating in a documentary like they didn't just come up to her door randomly. But then the interactions between her and Borat are, you know, apparently is some sort of genuine. So there's that's when I'm talking about that kind of like middle ground of things that like aren't quite um, that aren't exactly fake, but sort of aren't purely cinema verite either. I think a lot of the movie kind of falls into that category. And the, the, right. the Q&I guys in Washington State, um, I think definitely is is in that category as well. I mean, Janice Jones is a really good example of someone who could not have purely fallen into the category of being punked, not only because of the length of time that she interacts with them, but because of how smart she is. You know, I mean, she seems to be someone who has a moral conscience and who has some sort of a actual beat on the situation of, you know, this, this guy who appears to be this very abusive parent who wants to keep his daughter in a cage. She just is, clearly is not somebody who would who would put up with that and continue to to deal with that situation if she was not, you know, changing her relationship to it in some way. So she's kind of, you know, she's one of the few moral centers that this movie has. Although, I mean, you could certainly argue that 
not in character, perhaps, but as creators, you know, um, Sasha Baron Cohen and Maria Bakalova are the ones sort of driving the, the moral center of the movie as well. So as you say, the basic plot of this movie has to do with the attempt to give Tutar away as this bride, you know, this sort of bride gift from the government of Kazakhstan to uh, Premier Mikhail Pence, as, as Borat re- refers to him. That ends up failing because they can't get into this CPAC conference that, that Pence is speaking at. And so then they downgrade their ambition to uh, to give her to Rudy Giuliani. But before all of that stuff happens, we meet them Back in Kazakhstan, I think it was actually filmed in Romania, but we, we meet them in their dirt poor village and um, and we meet Borat, who has been apparently doing hard labor in the 14 years since the last movie came out because he failed to make glorious uh, nation of Kazakhstan and has been uh, punished this whole time. So this is actually a chance for him to to you know regain his freedom and uh, and his stature in the country. And in fact, before the decision to to make Tutar the the prize that they're giving away, the idea is that um, that Borat will be bringing this gift that is uh, a chimpanzee who is at once a porn star and uh, I think Kazakhstan's premier talk show host yeah, or something he's, he's like, like that. Like Kazakhstan's mini- like Kazakhstan's minister of culture and I think number one televisky star is the official term, <laughs> something like that. Uh, yeah, so he is uh, Johnny the Monkey is being sent over as a special guest. For uh, Mike Pence, um, Borat initially was – they initially wanted to give the gift to uh, Donald Trump. But if you've rewatched the first movie recently, you may remember that there's a scene in that where the camera kind of pans along the entrance to uh, Trump Tower and you see Borat at the end uh, taking a shit um, <laughs> at, like on this sign in, in 2006. So that they replay that clip and they're like, well, um, unfortunately, we can't you know get him too close to Trump. So they go for the second banana. Mike Pence, the uh, the vice pussy grabber, as Borat calls him. Uh, but when Borat shows up in the U.S., having gone kind of the slow carriage route while Johnny the Monkey got to go express, he opens the crate and finds that not only has his daughter sort of stowed away in it, but that she has, in order to keep herself alive during the transatlantic journey, eaten Johnny the Monkey. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so unfortunately, now he has to give uh, his daughter, who's a poor substitute for a, a porn star monkey, but this is the only gift he has left to give uh our, our great leaders. Sam, I'm going to stop you for just a minute for a word from our sponsor this week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Back to Borat. All right. There's two or three big big set pieces we definitely have to discuss that I can't wait to get to. But I wanted to talk maybe first about some of the more um, interstitial interactions that they have that, that Borat and his daughter Tutar have with Americans, which aren't always uh, ugly Americans exposing their um, the, the prejudices that are so close to the surface and so easy to expose, but are sometimes, you know, just somewhat baffled citizens trying to, to do right by this strange foreigner and his, his daughter who have appeared in their lives. The first one that occurred to me is the fax guy. There's a copy store that they keep going to to, uh, to send faxes back and forth to the premier of Kazakhstan. And uh, and these faxes get more and more bizarre and are about things like the dead monkey and, you know, giving the daughter to the pussy grabber in chief or his his uh, sidekick. 
and are just really right out front about the bizarre stuff that they're doing without giving any background to to the facts, dude. And I have to say that he acquits himself pretty well. <laughs> I mean, I suppose that there are moments that if he, he really thought all this was happening, he would have called the cops on them. But I also think there's a there's a nice element in those scenes with the facts guy that he may know he's being pranked, but, you know, be playing along with it in a somewhat generous way. Yeah. And there's a there's a charming little bit, too, where Borat, uh, or I guess he's playing one of his other characters at this point, but he is um, decides he says one of the big changes in the U.S. since he was last year in 2006 is that everyone has gone calculator crazy, um, which means that everybody's on their iPhones all the time and he needs to get a phone himself to be able to navigate the country. So he goes to in the telephone store, and he's buying a cell phone off this guy named Brian, uh, who he later describes as America's Minister of Technology. And Borat is just uh, you know totally confused by FaceTime. He you know is talking to the salesman over FaceTime, but keeps telling him to shush because he wants his twin brother in the phone to get a chance to talk. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. And Brian just uh, he doesn't seem to be like in on the joke, but he's just very politely kind of humors this guy, and it, it, it's interesting like. So much of these both both these movies are set in, you know, shot in the South. And a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, sort of exposing like some, some of the racism and the indifference to the history of slavery and, and stuff like that. But there's also an extent to which they kind of exploit, but then also kind of savor the certain kind of Southern uh, politeness or indulgence or stuff like this. The fact that, you know, if the Borat character, whoever, whatever the name of the character is playing at that point was in some store in Manhattan and being like, you know, Oh, I just discovered how to use porn on the cell phone. Do you mind if I just take it into the bathroom for a few minutes? Um, you know, they would have called the cops in there and Brian, this cell phone guy in, in, uh, I think he might be in North Carolina at that point. I'm not sure we know, but it's just kind of like, Oh, I think he figured it out. Um, so, <laughs> no, you know, so it's sort of, yeah, that scene is joking on Borat himself, the character, as much as it is the guy he's he's interacting with. I mean, there's right there's moments that he's making a fool of himself to make you laugh rather than making a fool of his his mark. Right. All right. Well, I guess the next big scene I wanted to talk about is the gross out scene. I mean, I would say that this is more or less the equivalent of the the naked wrestling scene in the first Borat movie. Right. I mean, it's a moment of physical comedy that's sort of trying to gross you out, but also just makes you laugh at its sheer um, taboo-breaking insanity, and that is this debutante ball kind of cotillion that they attend, father and daughter, in the persona, as you say, of of Professor Drummond and his daughter. Isn't her name Sarah Jessica Parker Drummond? I, I believe, believe is her yeah, fake name. Yeah, and that's they might have they might have made it Sandra Jessica Parker just to make it slightly less obvious for the people there. But yeah, that's basically the idea. Yeah. So they're they're in Georgia. It's a Southern debutante ball. And uh, and what it turns into is this uh, Kazakh fertility dance that the two of them decide to put on for the whole group that then devolves into this kind of like menstrual fertility, right? Whereas the father and daughter are joyfully dancing together to this gypsy music. Um, she starts to pull up her gown and you realize that she's on her period or moon blood, as she she says to her dad. Yeah. And uh, and then it really just becomes this sort of like gross out joke where you, you know, sort of observe, witness her her bloody thighs and underwear as they're doing this dance. And she and her dad continue to just sort of gleefully grin as they're, you know, as they're performing for this 
group of um, of fathers and daughters, essentially not aware that they could be doing anything but delighting everyone with their folk dance. And uh, I'm curious what you thought about this in light of the movie's attitude toward women, because as you said, I mean, there's this ongoing joke about how horribly women are treated in Kazakhstan. You know, she she begs for a nice cage. Her dream is to live in a golden cage like Princess Melania, as she calls the first lady. And uh, so throughout the whole movie, there's this that's a kind of critique of misogyny, but that you could also say is, you know, kind of in this scene for example, maybe an example of it, but I'm going to stand up for this debutante ball scene and say that it's the one part of the movie that I really did laugh out loud at, if only just at the sheer fearlessness of both of their performances and the grins on their faces. But when we were recording the Culture Gap Fest segment about this yesterday for, for Slate, our guest, Jody Rosen, was somewhat disturbed by the scene and was saying, you know, I felt like the, the, the whole joke of the scene was not on the people that they were making uncomfortable at the cotillion, but was just simply, isn't it gross that women bleed every month or something like that? Um, I can see it being laughed at in that way and kind of being har hard at by frat boys in a way that I might find disturbing, but... At the same time, I thought there was something sort of gloriously feminist about the idea of this father-daughter ritual where they're both just completely psyched that she's bleeding. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts about that? Well, it's interesting you make the comparison to the kind of naked wrestling match in the first movie because rewatching that, I mean, I that killed me the first time in 2006 and rewatching it uh, this time, like I didn't laugh at it at all. Um, and I wasn't, you know, kind of troubled by it or problematic, but it, it is in that thing where it's just kind of like how much of this how much of the humor here is because it's funny that like a fat guy has his balls in Sasha Baron Cohen's face. Um, yeah, I talk about that in my review of the first Borat, actually. I didn't remember that I talked about this, but looking back at my review before our conversation, I saw that one of my only objections to something that I found offensive in that movie that's constantly trying to offend you about everything was that I thought there was some some mean fat humor in the in the wrestling scene. Right. So this this is kind of, you know, having it both ways too. Like inevitably, I mean, part of the humor of this, this is, you know, it's an uncomfortable scene. And part of it is like, yeah, that she's like gross, that she's like doing these splits with this like giant. And it's not just like a little, she's got like this huge bloody <laughs> smear like all over her crotch. Um, but this is also in, in the context of, I think it's, you know, maybe right after uh, there's a whole scene where they go to one of those sort of fake, you know, abortion like, you know, quote unquote, crisis pregnancy centers where she's like, you know, supposedly trying to get an abortion. There's a whole gag where she like accidentally swallows a plastic baby on top of a cupcake. And then she goes to the thing and she's like, I have to get this baby out of me. It's dead. I don't want it to come out my asshole, whatever. And um, and this pastor who runs the thing just keeps, um, you know, talking about how she has to have the baby. And even, you know, at one point they Borat or again, whatever Borat character he's playing starts talking about how, oh, I put the baby in her, you know, and we need to get it out. And and so the pastor now thinks he's talking to like this 15 year old girl who's been impregnated by her father and wants to abort the child and then is still saying, like, you have to go through this. And that's obviously like horrifying. So having this, you know, scene that then revolves around menstruation, you know, a couple minutes later is sort of it fits into that context, into the context of you know, this kind of sort of running gag all the all through the movie that Kazakh society, you know, and again, quote, quote, unquote, no offense to the actual Kazakhstan, but that Borat's society is just incredibly, incredibly patriarchal. And it's like you can't, you know, if a woman tries to run a store, her head will fall off. Um, you know, if she tries to drive a car, that's what caused the Hindenburg explosion. Uh, you know, the, so you know, it's in the context of that and, and just also in the context of this debutante ball where these, you know, which is itself such a sexist institution where these women are being like presented to society by older men and they're, they're wearing their, you know, their white gloves and their, you know, off the shoulder dresses and stuff like that. So just to have her kind of, 
you know, exhibiting her menstrual blood in this very flamboyant way and, and cutting to the discomforting, discomforted faces of all the people in the room is, is like, that's the humor in it. But yeah, part of it is also just like, you know, periods are gross and funny. And it is, you know, I laughed pretty hard when I was watching it the first time. And then I watched it again with my wife. And it was one of those things where I'm just like, I was going to take a beat before I react to this and like make sure that I'm you know, I'm not like cracking up and then I start getting looks and then she was laughing way harder than I was. So I feel like we're fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't say that that scene was doing much to expose the audience members like who wouldn't be uncomfortable that if that happened, no matter your political or beliefs about gender or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still say that I, I laugh at that that scene just for the sheer performance and the glee that they take in that performance. And really the sense that Sasha Baron Cohen has found in Maria Bakalova, an actor of his own stripe, you know, two people who are willing to do something that gross and embarrassing and enjoy every minute of it. Um, one thing more though, about, about the, the position of women in this movie that I will say that is a little bit more critical is that I'm not sure that the movie quite nails American sexism in the way that it should, right? right. I mean, it, it posits this this very primal, tribal sexism of the culture that they come from. But there's also a sense late in the movie, as Tutar, there's a period where she kind of runs away from her dad and starts to find herself and becomes a journalist and starts to realize, wait, women can have careers. And wait, you know, I can touch my own private parts without my arm being <laughs> swallowed by a toothed vagina. And kind of, she comes into her own, right? And becomes, for example, somebody who could set up that interview with Giuliani on her own, as, as her character does. Um, and so in a way, it seems to me that this this movie, as smart as it is about some aspects of American politics, doesn't quite nail, you know, the the sexism of the country that it's exploring and trying to um, expose. Right. I mean, if anything, I mean, you maybe see a little reflection of it in that there's a moment um, later on to speak of sort of, you know, more sexist institutions has decided that and, you know, Borat kind of decides for his daughter that she needs to get a nose job and breast implants if she's going to properly seduce Rudy Giuliani. And then right on the eve of that happening, she walks into this, um, it's like a, you know, conservative women's club meeting at some Ramada Inn. And that's when she kind of has her epiphany. She goes into the bathroom and masturbates and comes out and in the middle of this little it practically almost feels like a sort of DAR meeting or something because after the podium is like, I have this wonderful thing to tell you, you know, you can, like, we all need to like put our fingers in our cunts. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, the, and the women, they're just all start getting like very uncomfortable and they're like, honey, we, you know, we don't talk about that in public. And, and so you, you see like, you know, a little of some of that like internalized misogyny. There's another part where she visits an, an Instagram influencer who advises her on how to be a, like a sort of a quote unquote sugar baby, you know, about how, how to be a young woman who seduces older men who are going to die soon and leave them their money. Um, it's, so that stuff kind of comes out in the movie. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it is certainly it also kind of reinforces the idea that if women just like, you know, go out and like get a job, then like everything will be fine and they'll be liberated. And obviously that is uh, not actually the case. Right. Um, okay, I feel like we're getting to some of the big payoffs now. And and the first one that we need to talk about is, I mean, what you really might consider in a way the um, the emotional climax of the movie, which is the scene in a synagogue that happens pretty well into the movie, about two thirds of the way through, maybe. Uh, there's a lot to say about this, this synagogue scene. But do you just want to describe, first of all, what, what happens? Yes. So uh, right after the scene I'm talking about where uh, Tutar's on the verge of, of getting plastic surgery and then has this revelation that uh, she can give herself orgasms and that everything in this owner's manual, that uh, this daughter owner's manual that Borat was given by the Cossack government uh, is a lie. 
And so she can actually, she says, you know, I hate you and they don't ever want to talk to you again. She goes off on her own. And then Borat is, is very despondent, um, decides that he wants to kill himself. And, but since he can't, you know, afford to get a gun in the U.S., and this is just a staggeringly dark joke, um, he decides that he's going to kill himself by going to the nearest synagogue to wait for the next mass shooting. Right. Uh, which is really like just knocked the wind out of me the first time I saw it. Like, that's just like that's a minute where the movie is like genuinely like right on the edge again. Um, so he decides to describe himself as what in his sort of fervently anti-Semitic mind is a typical Jew, um, which involves like, you know, putting a like an eight inch nose on his face and carrying kind of like a cartoon bag of money and a little wooden puppet with the word reading media on it and stuff like that. So he goes into the synagogue and there are these two elderly women sitting there. Um, and he, you know, and he starts talking to them. He, he says, he says, Oh, Oh, hello, fellow Jews. Nice weather. We're controlling. Um, and then, <laughs> and, and these women, instead of, instead of, you know, being alarmed that this guy's walking in, they, they sort of keep their cool with equanimity. They kind of talk him off his anti-Semitic ledge. You know, this uh, woman who we find out in the credits is, her name is Judith Dim Evans. She was a Holocaust survivor. Um, says, you know, come up to me, you know, touch my nose. I don't have a long nose. You know, I'm not going to inject you with my venom or whatever. And, and they end up having this real heart to heart. Um, and, and part of what happens, I, I should mention another thing that causes Borat's depressive episode is that Tutar you know, who has realized that this book that Borat gave her, this owner's manual is fake. So she's found the real truth in a different book called Facebook. And to prove it to him, she shows him an article uh, written by Holocaust deniers on Facebook about how the Holocaust wasn't real. And Borat, who believes that the Holocaust was one of Kazakhstan's greatest achievements, specifically the fact that uh, Kazakhs were guards in the concentration camps, is devastated to learn that this wasn't true and that the Holocaust was just, as he puts it, a beautiful fairy tale. Um, so Judith M. Evans reassures him in this scene that actually the Holocaust was real, and he and he's and he's overjoyed to find this out. <laughs> um, so it's, Here's it's, what I just have to say: it's yeah. when he's talking about Judaism that Sasha Baron Cohen is his funniest and his sharpest. And yeah. of course, he is an observant Jew in real life and keeps kosher. And these things are are really a part of what he grew up with and his culture. Um, and I completely agree that the the joke about waiting for a mass shooting, the interaction with the woman at the at the synagogue, some of those moments are the sharpest moments in the entire movie. Yeah, and it's really I mean that scene is very complicated too because if you read up on a little bit like she uh Judith Dim Evans, the movie is kind of dedicated to her. They there's a link to a website that tells her whole story. Um And she the, died since it was released, right? Yeah, she died, you know, sometime this year. And so, so they put together this website, uh, this tribute website with help from members of her family, but the the production is also being sued by her estate for supposedly tricking her into being this movie. And so it, it's like very complicated and then they're sort of there are actually articles in the trade press uh, explaining that while he was shooting the scene, Sasha Baron Cohen actually kind of broke character for the first time ever to explain to Judith Dim Evans, uh, you know, the nature of the movie, what was going on here, that he's a Jew, uh, that the purpose of the scene was to sort of mock anti-Semitism and not to reinforce it. Um, and there's a there's a sort of hard cut in the middle of the movie where it goes from Borat talking about um, how he doesn't want her to, you know, bite him and inject her with venom to them all sort of sitting down and having, you know, sharing bowls of chicken noodle soup and stuff like that. So, and the, so the tone really changes there. And the movie's like almost sentimental at this point. Um, 
especially in the context of the, of the rest of the film, which is so kind of, you know, outlandish and over the top. It's this real sort of oasis of calm in the middle of it. And it, and it shows you that, I mean, I think if anything has changed, really changed from the first movie, it's that, you know, even as he's playing this kind of absurd character caricature of an anti-Semite and saying all these you know, foul but absurdly over-the-top things, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen does kind of make sure to stop the movie in the middle just for a second and say, like, this is a joke. The Holocaust happened. Like, this is not, you know, this character is not <laughs> someone you're supposed to believe in any way. Um, and, and I think that that's, like, you know, whether that makes a difference or whether, you know, people who didn't get the joke in the first place are going to be swayed by that one way or the other, but it is a very sort of clear, like, moral choice that he makes to, to include that moment in the film. Yeah, I agree. I, and one one addition on Judith Jim Evans' family is that what I had read is that there's sort of two wings of the family, mm-hmm. that there are some people that are pursuing this lawsuit and are outraged by her portrayal in the movie and others who helped to make that website in her honor and really liked the fact that she appeared in the movie. So it's pretty complex. I mean, his, you know, the, the layers of, of satire and of exposure going on in that synagogue scene are more complex, I would say, than when he's doing things to, like just infiltrating a rally of rednecks, right? I mean, he's juggling a lot of different things in that in that synagogue scene. And, and so it ends up being, along with the scenes that show the father and daughter's relationship changing and developing, it ends up being something that sets this movie apart from the first movie, maybe in a good way. I mean, depending whether or not you, you like your Borat movies with a little sentimentality on the side. But, you know, there, there is um, an emotional arc to this movie. And that synagogue scene, I think, is a big part of it. Yeah. All right. And we've now been talking about Borat for over half an hour, and we still haven't gotten to the first thing that everybody knows about this movie, even if they don't plan on seeing it and know nothing else about it, which was the the revelation that came out a few days before the movie opened last week that Rudy Giuliani gets punked in a in a big uh, final scene of the movie, or not final, but, but pretty close to the end. Um, do you want to describe the background to the punking? I mean, I think at this point, everybody listening has probably seen these uh, money shot or maybe not money shot pictures of him lying on a hotel room bed with Maria Bakalova standing nearby. But how did he get there? What what happened before? I, I will do my very best. I mean, I have to admit, like having seen the movie, you know, the, the day before, uh, you know, the embargo lifted on those articles supposed to come out, uh, you know, that scene didn't really, I mean, I knew, I knew it was a big deal because they got Rudy Giuliani on camera. But the part of that scene that was really striking to me is the part where he says during this interview with uh, Tutar Sagdiev um, that uh, COVID-19 was manufactured by the Chinese, that seemed like bigger news to me that eventually they sort of almost not quite literally catch him with his pants down because the part of, of the scene that kind of becomes like the money shot is so kind of chaotically edited and, and weirdly shot that it was really hard for me to tell what was what was going on. But it at least got, you know, very quickly parsed, I think, first by The Guardian as like, here's Rudy Giuliani, you know, in his room with what's, you know, what in, in the movie is sort of a 15-year-old girl. It's not, also not clear that this character was presented to him as 15 with his hands in his Right. I don't think she room. was, by the way. For what yeah. it's worth, I don't think that Tutar is presented to him as 15. Yeah. So, and so here's, here's Rudy with his hands in his pants in the, in the presence of this young woman. Um, and it's gross. And that that sort of went uh, viral. And, and Juliana kind of pushed back against that. Um, but this, sorry, the, but the setup of it anyway is that Borat and, and Tutar are still estranged. They're not speaking to each other. And But Tutar learns that Borat is going to be executed by the premier of Kazakhstan unless she gives herself to Rudy Giuliani. 
And so she decides that she's going to go through with this to save her father's life. And she's going to get close to him by um, having followed in her father's footsteps and become a journalist herself, specifically for these sort of crazy right wing OAN and sites. Um, she's now secured an interview with Rudy Giuliani, and she is going to use this as the opportunity to kind of offer herself as a bride to him. And Borat you know, finds out this is going on and then is in engaged in a kind of like rush to the airport type scenario to kind of get there before it happens and stop her from doing it. Right. And I would concur with you that although I went in knowing about this scene and, and being expecting to be most shocked by the, the denouement of him on the bed, I agree that some of the most shocking stuff is the stuff that he says when he knows he's on camera. I mean, when he's in that bedroom, he's on a secret camera, which is why you see it partly in a mirror. Um, but when he's talking to her about, you know, the China virus being a manufactured hoax, He's just he's sitting there thinking that he's talking to a right wing media journalist. Right. And aside from whatever happens in the bedroom, accepts a drink from her, um, lets her touch his knee repeatedly and flatter him as the interview goes on. I mean, I think a lot of what shocked me in that Giuliani scene was, you know, before anything untoward or secretive takes place at all, you see what a day in the life of Rudy Giuliani is like that he thinks that's a, a perfectly normal thing to do. And if you imagine I mean, sex crimes aside, if you just imagine the security risks that he takes by just following this random young woman who says, I'm a journalist from a right wing Kazakh station um, into a hotel room and starting to talk to her about stuff. It's just it's really startling, especially given that this movie comes out the same week or maybe the week after he told that unbelievably preposterous story about Hunter Biden's laptop being left at a computer repair shop for him to pick up. It's just it just really makes Giuliani's sort of um, list of tasks for the Trump administration seem to be something very disturbing and bizarre. I mean, if he could be fooled by just a blonde in a tight dress saying that she wants to interview him and then getting on camera that he knows is there and saying that the Chinese manufactured COVID. I mean, this, this is the easiest person in the world to compromise. Um, and I, certainly, I, I think should you know, make you skeptical about anything else he claims to have uh, been given legitimately or stumbled onto. Right. I mean, if nothing else, speaking of COVID, he's sitting very close to her, maskless, right? I mean, that certainly happens throughout. I saw one review, a British review of this movie that said that this is the first great COVID movie. And uh, <laughs> it was it was an interesting um, angle to take on it. I'm not sure that I would completely agree. I don't think it really intends to be about COVID, although because that that happened during the course of filming, they do deal with it and talk about it. Um, but yeah, this is certainly a moment where you see that Giuliani feels completely entitled, both in terms of health and, you know, um, sexual behavior and uh, the stuff that he'll say on camera. He feels completely entitled to just do as he pleases all day long. Yeah. So it is hard to tell, like, what happens in the scene. And rather than going through it all ourselves, I would kind of just direct listeners to um, an article that Matt Tessum wrote for Slate, where he really forensically kind of shot by shot, like breaks down the scene and, you know, what you see, what you don't, where it's clear that the footage was kind of shuffled around in time and, and stuff like that. You know, it looks to me very much like, you know, the stuff about him sticking his hands down his pants and her, you see her like pulling out the top of his shirt is very much about like, it is done under the pretense of like removing his lavalier mic and the power pack that is usually, you know, people like stick on their belt or will, you know, put inside their shirt to prevent it from being seen on camera. And it seems to be, Something like that. And I, I, you know, could not possibly have less sympathy for Rudy Giuliani is a totally, you know, sort of vile invertebrate of a person. But this scene really does feel like entrapment in some ways. It certainly makes me suspect that that I, I mean, we're not clearly not seeing literally what what happened. And it feels like it's edited in a way that um, 
is just kind of deceptive in order to give the movie a big kick at the end. Um, so, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And I would also send people to that Matthew Desim piece, which is a great, I mean, whether you've seen this, this scene or not, but especially if you have seen it and you have it right there to replay is kind of a Zapruder style, as I think he himself says in the piece, uh, discussion of editing and the power of editing to, to influence uh, how, how events appear. <laughs> you know, it's, it's super well done. Um, since his daughter didn't give himself to Pence or Giuliani, how does he how does he make make glorious Kazakhstan when he gets back? Can you remind me? Well, he goes back to the premiere and and says, you know, he pulls Totor out of this interview and says, you know what, like I'd rather be executed than have you give yourself to this disgusting man. Um, so he goes back to Kazakhstan to face his fate and confesses to the premiere, you know, I'm sorry, like I never did this. You're going to execute me, and the premiere basically says, you know what. Not a big deal, whatever, we'll manage. And then there's a, a usual suspect style homage where Borat starts looking around this room and looking at all the, the charts and replaying moments from the movie. And he realizes that rather than the mission that he thought he was on, what he was actually sent to do was he was injected at the beginning of the movie with what he was told were quote unquote gypsy tears in order to protect him. But he was actually injected with COVID-19 and he has been sent all around the U.S. in order to spread the virus to the U.S. and get revenge. He's the index case, basically, right? He, he's the American index case. Yes. Yeah. And he was sent there to get revenge on the U.S. for making fun of Kazakhstan, you know, in the first movie for laughing at them. So he has been, yeah, he is kind of a, a unwitting weaponized super spreader of COVID. Um, and that's that's the big twist. I kind of love that the the big twist in this movie is entirely fictional and you know places and places them back in the frame of of Kazakhstan. I mean you you have to admit that there's a kind of there's a nice shape to that. Um it's a very silly scene, the usual suspects homage that you mentioned of him uh him staring around the room at at, at artifacts. But um but it provides a kind of a satisfying closure. And there's also an emotional closure to that arc that we talked about with Tutar because the two of them are united at the end. He seems to have become somewhat more enlightened in his view of women, right? In the sense that at least Tutar has kind of impressed him with her independence. And there's a moment when he admits to her that she is now his favorite of his children, even more than his uh, brutish sons that we briefly glimpsed at the beginning. And there's sort of a, a nice bond between them. And that was a moment, even though I didn't absolutely love this movie and didn't laugh that many times, that I kind of wanted there to be more Borat and Tutar in our future. Like, I wouldn't mind seeing the two of them set out on some other set of adventures. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's like an emotional payoff there. There's there's some sort of jokes within it about Kazakhstan is a a feminist nation now. So instead of sending off mail order brides, they now set, send off mail order grooms. And there's a shot of like young men in tuxedos being like packed into a crate and shipped to Kevin Spacey, um, <laughs> which I, I guess is progress. I don't know. Um, yeah, but but the, and then there is uh, the this uh, sort of set piece in, in the first movie called The Running of the Jew, which is like the running of the bulls, but with these kind of grotesque anti-Semitic puppet caricatures, because now they re now Kazakhstan realizes that, uh, first of all, anti-Semitism is bad and that the real enemy is not the, the Jew, but the American. And so now they have these grotesque, um, like there's a there's a like a MAGA hat guy and a sort of uh, McCulloch type like uh, Karen with an Uzi um, running down this narrow street and like shooting green mucus on people that out comes like a Dr. Fauci puppet and he's Karen shoots him dead with her AR-15. Um, so that's, that's, that's the happy ending, I guess. All right. So having reached the end of this movie, there's some more stuff I want to talk about that sort of lies outside the scope of the movie, but seems like a big part of it. 
because as I was saying up top, these movies are performance pieces and kind of wake up calls to the public as much as they are works of art. And that has to do with the reception of this movie and, and Sacha Baron Cohen's presence in the media afterward. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that, because you mentioned it a bit in your review. I mean, the fact, for one thing, that unlike back in 2006, Sacha Baron Cohen will now appear as himself from time to time. He went on Good Morning America with Maria Bakalova as himself. As you pointed out in your review, he late last year addressed the Jewish Anti-Defamation League as himself. And it's it's a really good speech that he made. But it's quite startling to hear him in the persona of his, you know, Oxford accented, extremely educated, progressive self who's not in character in the least, but is completely sincere. In the end, it all comes down to what kind of world we want. In his speech, Zuckerberg said that one of his main goals is to uphold as wide a definition of freedom of expression as possible. It sounds good. Yet our freedoms are not only an end in themselves, they're also the means to another end. As you say here in the US, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But today these rights are threatened by hate, conspiracies, and lies. So allow me to leave you with a suggestion for a different aim for society. The ultimate aim of society should be to make sure that people are not targeted, not harassed, and not murdered because of who they are, where they come from, who they love, or how they pray. Uh, he's also feuded some with Trump and Giuliani on Twitter about, you know, their their backlash to this movie. And I have to say that some of the funniest and most insightful uh, Borat content that I've seen in the past week doesn't come from the movie itself, but from these interactions with the media and political figures about the movie. Right. I think there's one point where, uh, you know, Trump was called him an idiot or something like that. And Sasha Baron Cohen said, well, you know, I always need to people to play racist goons and you're going to be out of a job soon. So, you know, if you need work, just come to me. Right. There's that one. And there was also a short video that he did in character as Borat uh, addressing Giuliani that I thought was, was extremely funny and sharp. I here to defend America's mayor, Rudolf Giuliani. What was an innocent, sexy time encounter between a consenting man and my 15-year-old daughter have been turned into something disgusting by fake news media. I warn you, anyone else try this, and Rudolph will not hesitate to reach into his legal briefs and whip out his subpoenas. Chenkui. I guess I'll just close, Sam, on asking you in a more general way, I mean, looking at the way that you, you framed your review of Borat's subsequent movie film, how you think this all lands differently in 2020? I mean, lots of people have observed, and I think it's very true, that it's it's much, much harder to expose a country that is desperate to expose itself the way that America seems to be in, in MAGA times. But I do, I would say that to his credit, I think Sasha Baron Cohen knows that and is trying to, in some ways, change his approach. Um, I'm not sure that it completely succeeds, but I just wonder what you think about, about Borat's moment right now. Do you think that it's over or that, you know, he's somebody who's, kind of energy can continue to reinvent itself. I think he's managed to kind of just adjust himself to the moment. And some of that has to do with what you were mentioning, the kind of extra textual things he has done around the movie. In fact, that Sasha Baron Cohen gave this big speech, to the ADL, specifically about kind of the spread of, of 
Holocaust denier disinformation on social media and how dangerous uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter are and YouTube um, in spreading white supremacist anti-Semitic content. You know, the way he's come out in other ways just to make his like personal stance really clear. I, I think that is kind of an Im- important part of how the movie is received. I think that that synagogue scene is a real you know, turning point as well, where there just is like just a little moment of seriousness in it. Uh, you know, I think the goofiness of it still works. Uh, but yeah, like exposing the same, exposing anti-Semites, you know, or, or even showing, uh, he's often said his job was to kind of expose like indifference to anti-Semitism. The fact that like people who maybe aren't even necessarily biggest will just like let this stuff happen right in front of them for, for whatever reason. Uh, I mean, we know that happens all the time. A lot of people probably do that in 2006 as well now, but you really have to be, you really have to have a a pretty thick set of blinders on in 2020 to not be aware of that. So I think that that element of of the movie is lacking kind of through no fault of his own. And I don't, not sure I really want to see someone kind of do to this moment what the first Borat did to 2006, because I don't want anybody going like, I don't know, that far out into the bigot stratosphere in order to do it. I think, you know, really what we can hope the best for is that in, you know, 14 years from now, we're back closer enough to the old normal for something like this to feel shocking again. Right. Yeah, exactly. If people would only be hypocritical in a, a slightly more concealed way, it would give Borat um, more more layers to, to un- uncover. Yeah, there's moments in the first movie where you sense that he's in physical danger, like when he gives that speech at the rodeo, if you remember that part of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- I think that those moments in this movie happen more behind the scenes. There's an extraordinary video that he posted to Twitter yesterday, Sasha Baron Cohen did, of himself escaping from that uh, that rally where he's country Steve, you know, a moment that they so suddenly discover that they're being punked and, and get onto him. And he gets chased, literally chased into his trailer and has to sort of say, pull out, you know, which made me really want to see the, fe- the behind the scenes featurette for this. <laughs> I will hold out for that when this uh, comes out on DVD. Although it's it's interesting that they cut that, too, because, I mean, you, there's an edginess to seeing him in physical danger in the first one. Um, and I, But I think, you know, maybe in this one, the idea of a Jewish man being in physical danger from a bunch of kind of like QAnon supporting COVID denialists is no longer um, something we can take even sort of, you know, thrilling suspense enjoyment from. I think that's it's just it's too dark to put in the movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that wasn't in the movie, although I was glad to see it as as behind the scenes footage. But, you know, he's he's obviously legitimately scared. And that's not something I would have wanted him to put on on screen for us to laugh at. All right. Well, if this does happen again in 14 years, (laughs) Sam, we'll both be old. You can hobble in and talk to me about the next Borat subsequent movie film. Yeah, I will look forward to doing that. So that's our show for today. As always, you can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like our show, please rate us and review us in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have ideas for movies or TV shows or even podcasts that we should spoil in the future or other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at Slate.com. Our producer today was Morgan Flannery. For Sam Adams, I am Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.